<laughs> 18 months we've been studying the Gospel of John. Uh, and I'm excited because we're here at the last chapter and we're going to cover the last section of John today and conclude. Well, uh, I'll start here. If you know me, you know that I love the mountains. Probably my favorite activity is hiking in the Sierra Nevadas, the Rockies, or even the foothills of Minnesota. Some maybe would call mountains. <laughs> um, each year, I get a chance to spend a few days with some friends in the mountains. Uh, there's three pastor friends of mine who I've known for more than a decade. We do what we call survival club every summer. And it's an accountability retreat. We talk about life. We talk about family. We talk about ministry and things that we're facing. And we want to be healthy pastors who stay in ministry for the long haul with the various challenges that we face. Now, we also do some fun activities. It's partly why we call it Survival Club, is we like to push ourselves literally to new heights. So on June 25th, 2014, almost 10 years ago now, my friends Luke, Chipper, and Ryan, we wanted to climb a 14er. Now, if you know what a 14er is, that's mountain speak for a summit that is over 14,000 feet high. So we decided to scale Quandry Peak near Breckenridge, Colorado. So here's a photo of that mountain. Now, we set out from the Monte Cristo Trailhead at 825 in the morning, and we, we started at an elevation of 10,860 feet. Now, the, the hike to the summit took us two and a half hours and we gained over 3,400 feet in elevation in only 2.7 miles. If you can sort of imagine the math there, that's almost straight up. Now we hit a tree, the tree line was at 11,700 feet and the rest of the hike was almost straight up this face of crushed rock. And here's my friends, I took this photo as my three buddies are climbing near the, near the, the, the summit. Now if you've ever done a hike like this, you know that the lack of oxygen can do really strange things to your body. I remember the last 30 minutes, this final slope, as we scaled the last 1,000 feet. My vision got a little bit blurry, your legs kind of get shaky, and, and because you're higher than everything else around you, there's no longer any background or any horizon in your peripheral. You're literally standing on the highest thing for miles, and so it's really disorienting because you have nothing to orient your, uh, your eye. Now, I'll tell you, when you get to the top, the view from the summit is incredible. Okay, we reach the peak at 11 a.m., and the final elevation of this mountain is 14,265 feet. So this is a photo of me at the top, and they've got this little sign that says Quandry Peak with the height of the peak. Now, the top of Quandry is covered in snow year-round, and as we stood on this peak, which the summit of it is smaller than this room, you could see for dozens of miles in every direction. The grandeur of this vista was incredible. The perspective that it offers, the vision, the ability to see clearly in all directions is such a breathtaking experience. Now we spent 25 minutes on the summit and as we were basking in the glory and the, 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 the uh, glory of this achievement, um, we were standing there and suddenly the sunshine was gone. And we looked up and we saw some clouds forming. And my friend Luke, who lives in Colorado, and this is near his hometown, he looks at us and he suddenly says, we need to go right now. Now, if you've ever been on the top of a mountain like this, the weather can change extremely fast. 
we turn around and start hiking. And within a few minutes of leaving the summit, it started blowing snow at our backs, 30 mile an hour wind with the snow blowing sideways as we were hiking down the mountain. See, being exposed on this summit is not a good idea when a thunderstorm suddenly rolls in. So we start, we start going down the mountain as fast as we can, and it's, it's kind of terrifying for a few minutes there. And then we get to the tree line about 20 minutes later, and the storm suddenly stops, and the sunshine comes back out, and everything's fine. And we sort of look at each other, and we're like, that was kind of close. We were tired, of course, when we got back down to the bottom, but grateful that we were safe. Now, friends, in many ways... This experience is like the experience of Jesus' disciples in the Gospel of John. For Jesus' disciples, getting to the mountain peak of the resurrection of Jesus is somewhat disorienting for them. Sometimes their vision of God's kingdom got a little bit blurry, or their legs got shaky, or their ability to balance was tested. Now remember, if you, we saw this unfold, they scattered when Jesus was arrested. They struggled to understand Jesus' purpose in going to the cross. And, and like some of them, like Peter, denied publicly that he knew Jesus at the moment of truth. And yet, here we are, and here they are, overjoyed at the appearance of the resurrected Jesus. They are on top of the world. Hardly able to believe that this is really happening. Jesus is alive. And this reality changes everything. It shapes our perspective. It gives you a vision greater and grander than anything else. The vantage point of the resurrected Christ from which we can see clearly the purposes of God. You see, we've now, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, we've now reached the summit, the peak of John's Gospel and this chapter now, chapter 21, asks this question. What now? What next? The storm clouds are brewing, if you will. The disciples have this mountaintop experience of Jesus being resurrected. And yet now, he's going to ascend to the Father. And what comes next? They're about to enter a lifelong journey of witnessing about Jesus in a very hostile world. And so this morning we come now to the final chapter of the Gospel of John. And this answers this question. We're going to see in the account of John 21 today a tying back to critical moments from earlier in the Gospels. When Jesus once again now calls his disciples to follow him. And he specifically reinstates Peter to help establish the early church. And this is a launching point. It's a sending of the disciples to come down from the summit, if you will, and to go into the world to be the witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So open to John 21 with me. Or if you need a copy of the Bible, raise your hand and we can have you get a copy to follow along with me. We're going to be reading the entire chapter here. And this final chapter recalls two specific events. As Jesus specifically deliberately reconstitutes and then recommissions his disciples to follow him and lead the church. And so as I read the text, I want you to notice the themes of fishing and shepherding come through in the text, in the passage. So let's read John 21. We'll pick it up in verse 1 and read the chapter. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. 
Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your nets on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! As soon as Peter, Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger and dressed yourself and went, you went and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. 
We finished John. <laughs> Woo. Okay, now there's two parts to this text, to this chapter of Jesus' third appearance. The first thing we see is a familiar story of fishing that hearkens to when Jesus first called his disciples. That's verses 1 through 14. Then second, we see this threefold reinstatement of Peter as Jesus commissions him to shepherd the church, verses 15 to 25. So that's how we're going to tackle this. Let's jump into that first section. This is breakfast with Jesus, verses 1 through 14. Now, we pick up the story here in Galilee. Verses 1 through 2 tell us the names of the specific disciples who were together, which included Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. We don't know their names. John doesn't mention them. Now, why were they in Galilee and not Jerusalem? Where we left them last was in Jerusalem. Now, Galilee is about 70 miles north of Jerusalem, so it took a number of days to walk there. Now, the Gospel of Matthew tells us why. So if you're familiar with this, at the Last Supper, there's this conversation that happened with the disciples and Jesus in Matthew 26. And I actually just want to read it for you. Here it is. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, you, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But listen to this. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Do you remember this? Okay, we've talked about this before. We already covered this event. Peter's grand promises, the disciples' lofty aspirations of following Jesus even to the point of death. They're all dashed at the moment of truth. They abandon and deny him. Now, do you see the part about Galilee? This is what, what's important about that text. Jesus promised that he would go ahead of them into Galilee after he had risen. And you can just see the disciples in this moment. I wanted to read the whole thing because it's almost like they just skipped right over it. He says, oh, I'm going to have to die. And, and they go, hold on a second. Uh, we don't want that to happen. They totally missed this part. Now, they remember and they head to Galilee to find Jesus. Now, here's, a, here's another thing that I want to point out, something that hasn't been maybe, maybe noticed so far. Something important about the appearances of Jesus. In all three appearances of Jesus in the Gospel of John, the followers of Jesus don't find him. Jesus appears to them. This is important, okay? Because Jesus initiates he plans, he decides, he reveals himself to his people. There's this sense of the sovereignty of Jesus in these appearances. He's not sitting around and his followers go and search him out. They're looking around and then he shows up. Now, here the disciples are waiting. And, and we see this kind of unfold in the text here. There seems to be almost a, an aimlessness or an anxiety in Peter and his uh, and these other disciples. Uh, he's back in Galilee, and you remember this is his hometown, and this is his home area. He used to be a fisherman, and he doesn't know what to do. He's, 
He, he's not sure where Jesus is now. And so he probably feels this sense of trepidation after all of his denials. What do I do next? So as this scene unfolds, I don't want you to miss the symbolism of what happens here. Because this whole account should draw us back to remember a foundational event when Jesus first encountered Peter and these disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. So go to verse 4. I want to draw your attention to a few things here. Verse 4 says... Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Okay, we need to stop there already. Early in the morning, don't skip over that. There's this symbolism here of light in the Gospel of John. And John frequently plays light and darkness against each other or sort of plays up those themes. And so the fact that it's dawn, that it's early in the morning, is symbolic of the fact that here's the risen Savior, the light of the world, who is dawning in his reign as the risen King. And so here at first light, we see the symbolism of, of the light dawning. Now, immediately prior in verse 3, did you notice this? They went out and got into the boat, and all night they caught nothing. John's playing these things on purpose. They were out all night in the darkness. The disciples, in this darkness, coming near shore, and Jesus, as the light, is standing there at dawn. It's just a beautiful account here. Now, pick it up in, in the next verse, verse 5. Jesus called, he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. So he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Now, uh, there's a number of things to pull back to the original account here. I think it's, it's interesting how Jesus' suggestion to throw the net on the other side of the boat. It's a very interesting thing at this moment. It said in the text that the disciples don't know who Jesus is. They don't, rec they don't realize who it is. They don't recognize him. So here's this random man standing on shore telling them what to do. He's standing there 100 yards away. They're likely only able to see his silhouette in the early dawn light. Why would they take his advice? It's likely that, that Jesus is, um, when, when you study the language here, some of the, way, the words he uses are very casual. The word friends is almost like saying the word, hey guys. Haven't you caught anything? He's doing some of the banter of fishermen here. And if any of you fish, you know how this goes. If you come back and you haven't caught anything, your buddies or your friend is going to look at you and go, well, did you try leeches? Did you try worms? Why didn't, you put, why didn't you try some of those plastic ones? Or why didn't you put a crankbait on? Did you try trolling? And you just like go through the litany of it and you're sitting there rolling your eyes going, you know what, I tried everything. Why are you asking me? So at the, I see this unfold here. You can just imagine the disciples not knowing who this random person is on the shore, giving them unwanted advice, rolling their eyes and going, we're professional fishermen. Okay, we'll put it on the other side. And here they pull in an unbelievable catch. Now, a few years ago, uh, I decided to take my daughter Annabelle fishing, and I invited my dad to come. So it was like a, you know, grandpa and me and, and my daughter. And we took my little boat out to uh, Lake Billsby down in Cannon Falls, and we fished for hours, and we caught nothing. And so Annabelle, she was just a few years ago, she had this little fishing pole, 
and she had a little plastic worm on it. And I told her, you need to cast that thing over near the reeds and then slowly reel it in. And that's probably how you'll catch a fish. And of course, she didn't want to do that. She takes the, the, the lure and just plops it down six inches under the water right next to the boat. And I looked at her and I said, you're never going to catch anything doing that. And she insisted. So I said, okay, whatever. And five minutes later, she pulls in this huge bass who swam right up and caught that worm next to the boat. And I've been eating my words for like four years now. She will not let me hear the end of it. Every time we go fishing, she goes, Dad, remember that time you said I won't catch anything? <laughs> this is how this passage unfolds. These disciples going, yeah, right. We've been trying all night. And here Jesus says, toss it on the other side. Now, think about this moment, okay, with Jesus and his disciples. This has all happened before. I mentioned that this is tying back to a previous account. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, describe this original account. And I actually want to read it for you because we're tying some things back together here that will, will be helpful. This is how this unfolds. You'll see it on the screen. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Do you see the parallels? But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled up their, boat, their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Okay, now, fast forward to John 21. The Apostle John, one of the sons of Zebedee, who was here at the first account, he remembers as soon as they see this large catch of fish, they'd worked hard all night, didn't catch anything. Jesus says, throw it on the other side. All of a sudden it clicks in his mind and he says, it's the Lord. And Peter, it suddenly clicks for him too. He brashly, what typical of Peter, he doesn't really think before he acts. So he starts wrapping his garment around him and he jumps out of the boat and he swims the hundred yards to shore and he leaves the rest of the disciples to deal with the boat. Now, I read that original account because I want you to see some important parallels and some important differences. Here's a few things to compare between Luke 5 and John 21. One that's the same is that they had fished all night long and caught nothing. There's this sense, as Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Here they are. Jesus then 
similarly tells them to let down the net and they catch a miraculous amount of fish. Now, something that's different is Peter's reaction. His first reaction in Luke 5 was, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He wants to get as far away from this miracle worker as possible. And here in John 21, the second reaction is he has is he jumps out of the boat to get to Jesus as fast as possible. He wants to get close to Jesus this time. Now, the second, another thing that's different is the nets. The nets break in Luke 5, and the nets don't break in John 21. And there's some interpreters who say there's something about how no matter how many fish are caught when they go out in the age of the church, that the nets will never break, that there's room for more. And then we see Jesus' commissioning of Peter being different. The first commissioning was, go fish for people. Now, that's not that that one's obsolete now, but now, and this is where the passage transitions, Jesus commissions Peter to shepherd the flock, feed my lambs. Now, when they get to shore, I don't want you to miss this. Okay, we've seen quickly these comparisons of the two. Did you notice the location of where Jesus is? He's on shore and he built a fire of coals. Now, do you remember the high priest's courtyard? Where have we seen a fire recently in the Gospel of John? There's something profound that's about to happen because here we see Peter again around a fire. Let's go to the second part of our passage now um, as we've now looking at, at Jesus reinstating Peter and we're going to see how these are tied together. So pick it up in verse 15. Now after Jesus feeds the disciples breakfast, he has something to say. Pick it up in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Friends, I need you to see this. Peter here again finds himself around a fire being questioned about whether he loves Jesus. The only other time that this specific word for burning coals is used in the Gospel of John is at that moment in the courtyard. So John is drawing our attention back to that on purpose. This is the moment around in the high priest's courtyard where, Jesus, uh, where Peter had denied Jesus around a fire. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus now reinstates Peter three times. And there's an irony here that I, want, I, I, I wonder if you noticed. The text says Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him a third time. Think back to that moment. Don't you think Jesus would have been hurt by Peter's denial? And Peter still, at this moment, he's like, it's still about him. He's like, oh, Jesus, how could you ask me three times if I love you? And you can imagine Jesus patiently 
pressing into that third question. Do you love me? See, the Apostle John captures this moment because it's critical for the beginning of the church. See, this is the end of the Gospel of John. This is now, this isn't just a, this isn't really an ending. It's really a beginning. It's, it's coming down from that mountaintop of the resurrection and realizing that there's work to be done in the church age. And Jesus here is recommissioning and constituting his disciples to follow him. There's a world out there and storms are brewing and these disciples are now being sent into difficult times to do a job to fulfill the Great Commission. And Jesus takes this moment to pull Peter aside, the oldest and the leader of the disciples, and to call him again, to redeem his failure, to set him on a trajectory of shepherding the early church in these first crucial years. Now, in Jesus' three questions, I don't want you to miss this either, there's a powerful teaching tool. One of the consistent things we've seen in the Gospels is that Jesus tends to use questions to create disequilibrium in people's minds. He will pose a question. It's one of the most effective things that you can do to pose a question to someone and make them think. And Jesus, by posing this question to Peter, gets to the heart of the matter. Now, did you notice the language of some of the things that he says? Let me just highlight them for you. Whose lambs are these? Jesus is very specific. He says, feed my sheep, tend my flock, feed my lambs. They belong to Jesus. And then what is the basis for Peter's care? Why would Peter shepherd the church? It's out of love for Jesus. This is the question. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. These are foundational for what Peter is to become as a leader in the early church. And I want you to look at what Jesus says immediately after this on what his fate will be after he gives this final command to feed the sheep. Pick it up in verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. I need you to see this. The language of stretching out your hands are specific words that are typical of the words that are used when a Roman soldier would stretch out the hands of someone to be nailed to a cross. Historical evidence shows that Peter was martyred later, years later, in Rome under Emperor Nero. And he was most likely crucified. And the words of Jesus here reveal that Peter will not only shepherd the church in modeling after the chief shepherd and his love and care for his flock, but that he will also follow in Jesus' footsteps to the point of death, dying like Jesus. Do you remember Peter's lofty promises at the Last Supper? That's why I wanted to read those texts again for you. Let me remind you of what he said. We already read it in Matthew 26, verse 33. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. 
And yet he did just that. <coughs> Friends, I need you to see something here. Jesus is working something deeper within Peter. And it's similar to what he does with us. He's doing a work of heart transformation. He's forging a man of God. A true wholehearted disciple. One who knows his failure and his suffering. Who realizes that he tried to follow Jesus on his own strength. And now Peter has come to the end of himself. This is what God will do for you. To come to the end of yourself knowing that in that desperate, surrendered, wholehearted devotion to Jesus that you can be ready to be used by God. It's at this moment that Jesus renews his calling of Peter. You remember on the beach three years earlier, he looks at Peter and he says, don't be afraid. Follow me. Follow, follow me, he says. Fix your eyes upon me. Draw your strength from me. Tend and care for the church like I tenderly care for each one. Like you, Peter. This is the real moment of truth for Peter. Peter thought the moment of truth was there at the first fire. Where he was going to, on his own strength, stand up for Jesus. And here Peter finds himself, rather than on his own strength, he finds himself raised up, lifted up from his failure by the grace and redeeming power of Jesus. Rather than his failure winning the day, Jesus' mercy and his grace wins the day. Redeeming a life so that Christ's power would be made perfect in Peter's weakness. This is how the church of Jesus Christ must begin. Now, as the passage winds down, Peter is still Peter. And so look at what happens next. He turns around to see the apostle John, and he's not, he, he hasn't quite gotten it, because he turns around and he says, well, what about him? <laughs> it's such a Peter thing to do. <laughs> See, when faced with the future reality that he's going to be martyred for his faith, he turns around and looks at the next guy and he says, well, what about that? What about him? And Jesus' response is very simple. God's plan for other people's lives is not your business. You must simply follow me. Now, we know that Peter took this to heart. And I want to end by sharing in Peter's own words how he came to understand his being commissioned for a life of discipleship and tending the flock. Towards the end of his life, Peter wrote a letter that we know as 1 Peter. And I want you to listen to these words from a formerly proud man, one who used to lord it over others, one who was anxious to achieve things by his own strength, who fell to Satan's temptations and suffered failure, and yet was one who was restored by Jesus. Listen to what he says years later. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering 
who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of, the, of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. As God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes, opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. <coughs> Restored, strong, steadfast, humble, prayerful, full of love and care. This is the redeemed Peter. This is the Spirit-empowered Peter, an example to the people of God. And it is such a fitting way to end the Gospel of John with a real-life story of the redemption of Christ in Peter's life. And what I want to do is we conclude the Gospel of John, because I think this really launches us into something, is that as we end this book, our elders at our church have decided to do a short series over the next few weeks from now to Palm Sunday that's called Biblical Church Leadership. And we're going to start with a message about how Jesus is the chief shepherd. And then we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about him as the head of the church, then discuss topics like elders and deacons, etc., priorities for ministry from 1 Timothy. And we're going to see some of these themes come up again and again as we launch into the witness for the gospel. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you as you have walked with us through this series, as we've looked in through the gospel of John and seen the glorious reality of, Father, how you've sent your Son to die in our place, to rise again, that the perspective we have, the, the, the reality of, of the, the, it's the pivot of history. Everything changes because of Christ. Now as we come down from that kind of summit of, of seeing these realities be true, teach us now what it means to be your church. That we would, that we would walk in your ways, be your witnesses, your disciples sent out into this place where we are, 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 are planted that we would have 
the same transformation in our hearts like Peter, ones who went from trying to do it on our own strength to living in the grace of God day by day, lifted up by the God of all grace. Do that in us now, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.